so many times in my life I'd say, well, I'm not this bad or I'm not that bad. Or, you know, I know someone else who's in a worse position or whatever. And all it did was just like kick the can down the road until I was worse than the people that I said I was better off than. So just like, don't basically don't wait for things to get worse. Start doing something immediately. You know, like when is the best time to start brushing your teeth? Like probably before you have cavities, like don't wait until you get them to start brushing. Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back, listeners. As always, your host, Steve Wopolinik, here with another Break the Chains, Find Your Flame episode. Today is episode 70, and our guest is Johnny Crowder. Now, the name of this episode is called The Spectrum of Mental Health Care, and it's really relevant because this is exactly what Johnny and I get into. Obviously, we don't shy away from mental health on the podcast. It's a big reason why we started the podcast. Johnny and I get in-depth about the spectrum of care when it comes to mental health because most people only look at it as provider-based and levels of care, whether it's acute level of care or lower level of care of inpatient, outpatient, things of that nature. Johnny is really open about sharing his own experiences and his own identity and and connecting with other people and his own struggles to really understand feeling isolated to be a vocal component to the mental health care spectrum that's out there, which is a big part of of what we talk about as community as uh, relevance of, you know, the spectrum can be from anyone, a friend, a colleague, Uh, People you may not know, music, are all different kinds of mental health care. And it's it's a fallacy to only focus on one. And so we talk way more about what the spectrum looks like in this episode. It's a really great episode. Can't wait for you all to hear it. So without further ado, here's Johnny Crowder. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away... Is to break the chains and find our flame. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Johnny Crowder from Cope Notes. Johnny, great to have you here. I know we had spoken once before and did like a checking, kind of introduced ourselves, but um, obviously our audience was not there for that. So I'm wondering if you could do a short kind of introduction of who you are what your passions and, and goals in life, I guess, are and, and, you know, how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, this is always hard, right? Yeah, it's the, like I've been on a couple of other people's podcasts. It's always the most awkward thing. Oh, what do, where do I start? Where, what do I do with? So yeah. I'm glad it's not I'll, me. I'm glad it's you this time. I'll try to sum up 30 years in 30 seconds. There you go. So let's do it. I work in mental health now. I run a mental health technology company called Cope Notes. Um, and I went to school for psych. So we're working backwards here. Like I work in behavioral health now because I went to school for psych because I was in treatment for mental illness, because I grew up with mental illness, because I was in an abusive household. So all of my life, uh, mental and emotional health have been like a cornerstone of my focus, whether I wanted it to be or not. Right. And a few facts that are unrelated to that. Um, I really like cars. I have a dog named pepperoni pizza. That's her actual name. Nice. And, um, I really like heavy metal and hardcore music. So I've been a touring musician for probably 13 years. So I would say music and mental health are like my two main things. Nice. And your shoe head, it looks like from. from yeah, big of... sneaker nerd as well. Yeah. 
Awesome. Um, so obviously that that's a, a short summation of who you are as a person. And, you know, we could get into the esoteric and philosophical conversation of what, what makes a person. But I also think, you know, that introduction will allow us to really get into some good conversations about mental health and music and, you know, what you're doing with Cope Notes in general. And I like how you started where you're at and, and worked backwards a little bit through that and your transition from, you know, an abusive household, things that were kind of outside of your control to wanting to study and wanting to make a difference. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that point maybe in your life where you were able to to kind of switch the gears and say, hey, this is something I'm interested in, in kind of helping with or doing more with and not just having my own um, history with. Yeah, you would think that would be when I started therapy, but it wasn't. I was like <laughs> not a willful participant in my treatment for a long time. I was, yeah. um, my attitude was very much like, oh, you doctors think you know everything. Um, I'm the one who knows everything. I'm 14. Like <laughs> I'm a genius. So I, there was definitely a part of me that didn't want to learn about psychology because I was almost like nervous about what I would find. And then as I started taking psychology courses, I was recognizing like, oh, shoot, my doctors are right. <laughs> like they actually they're starting to make a lot of sense. And then I think it was around the time. Um, so I went to I took college level psychology in high school and then I went to the University of Central Florida for psychology. And it was probably during my first year or so, uh, maybe first year, year and a half in college when I connected with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And yeah. I learned about something called peer support, which I thought that I had to become a clinician in order to help people with their mental health. Like that in my mind, I was like, well, I guess you have to be a doctor, right? Right. And peer support meant that I, someone living with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, whatever, could meet with other people with similar diagnoses and just kind of listen to them and talk to them. And that's a way of providing support. And I was like, what? You're telling me I can help people without spending like a decade in college earning a PhD. And if, if people can't see me right now, you know, I'm not much of like a, I don't look a lot like a doctor. I don't sound a lot like a doctor. I'm very much a t-shirt and jeans kind of dude. So when I learned about peer support, I think it opened up um, a lot of possibilities for me. Cause I used to think only certain people could help other people with their mental health. And now I'm like, Oh, almost anyone can, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a big thing with, with mental health in general is just this concept of very structured. This is the only way you can, can do work on things. And I think it's pretty prevalent, not only in communities, but also in, in people who are learning to be um, therapists or learning to be psychiatrists or, you know, one of the things I had to grapple with when I was doing my training to be a therapist was really about, hey man, you don't have to be the sole person that can help someone. You don't have to carry all this weight and feel like, ah, I got to figure this out. Oh, I don't know what's happening. What's wrong with me? And that imposter syndrome that comes from it. And really that's something I don't think I ever learned. I just felt like, okay, I'm sitting with this person and I might be the, like, it sounds egomaniacal, but it, it is kind of like this responsibility that gets thrust upon you sometimes. And I think what you're saying is a super important thing in destigmatizing mental health is that, no, you don't have to only have one person to help. You don't have to have, be a doctor or have a master's or licensed to help someone. It's just being there and, and being a support and helping co-regulate and listening, right? Like that's one of the biggest things that can really help. Yeah, I want to clarify. I know that everyone knows that I'm not saying that doctors aren't smart. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Whatever. But I do think <laughs> there's something really liberating in learning, like, you know, there, if there's a continuum of care, right? Yeah. And all the way on the left side, you have like a mug that says smile on it or something like something that really doesn't move the needle at all. And then all the way on the right, you have like inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. There's tons of things in the middle right. and learning that you live somewhere in that spectrum as just a regular old person where you can listen to a friend or you can offer advice or support or just share what you're going through with somebody. And once you realize that that is a needle mover, 
that you're actually like making an impact. And you can do that as a person without degrees. It doesn't mean that people with degrees don't need to be on that spectrum also. Exactly. It's just a reminder that you're an agent of change no matter where you live in that continuum. Yeah. It's one of the biggest things that, you know, the nonprofit that we run, uh, the Promethean Project is what we're trying to focus on is bringing the community back in to this concept of treatment because it, it is a missing part that I think some people have it, some people get that support, some people have providers that help them connect. But I think there, you talked about a spectrum and a lot of times that spectrum, there's a lot of people who help someone, but they're not necessarily communicating with each other all the time. And so it's hard to really ascertain, oh, well, how, how do I go about this? Who do I listen to? What What is the next step? Or how do I do that? And I think that's one of the, the cool things that you're talking about is First, there's a spectrum, but then also every person, every provider, everything on the spectrum can integrate to really form like really cohesive support and healing. Yeah, I, I picture it kind of like, um, you know, let's take vegetables, for example. <laughs> okay. I like where this is going. I like me some yeah. veggies. Let's, let's picture someone who says the only way you can get fiber is broccoli. And that's kind of the prevailing wisdom around mental health. It's like the only thing that can help you at all is treatment, let's say, which is all, I mean, that's true. That is, there's truth in that. Like broccoli does have fiber. Treatment does help your mental health, but it's like, what about asparagus? What about carrots? And once you kind of open it up, you're like, oh shoot, there's all different colors and sizes and flavors. Right. And all of these things could provide fiber. Even some of these things aren't, technically vegetables that still have fiber. So it it is freeing and liberating to realize that the scope isn't so narrow. And a lot of times it does require combining a few different resources to kind of set up something that works for you. And I, I know people who would never download a mental health app in their life. I know people who would never crack the spine of a book that is designed to help their mental health. Everybody's a little bit different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's really to go along with like the food, food analogy is about making it digestible for people, which, which connects with them. And, you know, like, I love the veggie comparison because you could almost flip it to the other side and say, when people talk about protein, when they're confronted with people who are vegetarian or vegan, they're like, well, what are you going to do for protein? This is how you, this is the only protein mm -hmm. there is in meat. Um, same kind of dynamic, right? Like there, there's all these varying kind of ways and yes, protein for meat is good and healthy and that helps you, but you can find it in other mechanisms and other ways as well. And just as yeah. supportive and helpful for people. Um, so there's a great analogy and it really is about figuring out what works for some people and what uh, will be generative for people as opposed to just forcing, you know, okay, here's the box make it fit. Yeah. You know, I, one of the things I always talk about with clients is like, you know, we always hear that analogy of thinking outside of the box, but how often is that actually happening? Yeah. And I do this activity. I learned it in college from one of my professors. It's a, a thought, um, like a, a, an exercise on thought. And it really is just like, you have nine dots and you have to connect them with a certain amount of lines. And the whole, I don't want to ruin it for people. So I've used it in the podcast before. So just pause, go find the nine dot, you know, thought provoking question and then come back to this. But the whole concept is you have to, I think it's uh, nine dots. You have to connect every dot with a line. You can only use four lines, right? And most people will, will try to do it and they end up trying new ways, but it's just a different orientation of the same way. And the concept with it is because you put the nine dots in three rows, so it looks like a box. So they stay within that box trying to figure it out. They don't realize that in the rules, you never say you can't draw like a huge line out here and then come back with that line to connect. And, you know, and so when we talk about, you know, what we do in sessions, I like to start with that. It's like, this is what I want you to think therapy as. It's, this is the, the box that we often think, this is what we can do. That's so cool. I have to Google this afterwards. <laughs> you should check it out. It may not hold as much because I gave you a little hint on that. But Oh, um, but I'm so pumped. 
That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I like that a lot. And uh, I also have used it with my siblings to get them to do my chores <laughs> before. It's like, I bet you can't oh. solve this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. genius. Yes. Evil genius. Evil genius. That's the egomaniacal aspect. <laughs> um, so what is, so going back to what we were talking about, what drove you to kind of check into psychology as that, that option for you and, and start doing that and then how did you start realizing you mentioned you realized oh okay some of what they're saying is true um how did you start putting that into practice well i should say that i took psychology in high school in part to prove my doctors wrong um so it wasn't <laughs> so it was really, out of spite <laughs> like ah, i'm gonna study it, psychology out of spite. there was definitely a, a skepticism inside of me like when my doctor would say like oh you have ocd i'd be like whoa no, Monk has OCD from the TV show. I don't have OCD. Like, and I, I would make all of these little exclusionary rules that would keep me from qualifying for having certain diagnoses. And then there was definitely a lot of curiosity in me. There was like skepticism in saying like, here, here was my mentality. I'd say my doctors are wrong, but I want to figure out what's right. Mm. And then that curiosity led me to take psychology. Turns out my doctors were right. So bravo. Um, but yeah, they were obviously right. They were like three times my age and went to school for as long as I've been alive to learn about that stuff. But then I think when it started, when it started becoming clear to me that um, my symptoms were related to like real conditions and that a certain percentage of the population were also experiencing those symptoms, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm not the only person in the world. I'm not like cursed, right? I'm not like this one person out of 7 billion that's like being tortured by having these, like, I read something like 1% of the US population had schizophrenia or something. And I was like, that's so many freaking people. It's a lot of you. Like the percentage seems small, but when you when you expound it to yeah. what that actually means, it's a lot. And then I was like, not only did I not feel alone or cursed or doomed because I was like, there's literally 3 million other people. There might be people in my class right now who have schizophrenia and, and they don't know that I have it because I don't talk about it. Right. I don't know that they have it because they don't talk about it. And it may, it really fired me up because number one, I was reading that this was like a real medical like th- there's real science behind it. It's not because I'm evil or broken or stupid. Right. It's like synapses and neurotransmitters. And I'm like, oh, if this is just science, that means I can learn about it. Mm. And so it, it really empowered me to start finally taking ownership of my recovery rather than being like, oh, I'm just screwed up. And this is the way I'll always be. When it, when I think learning about the science behind it made it feel less personal, like less of an attack towards me and more about just about a condition. Like the other day I was, um, so I'm allergic to pollen and I live in Florida. It's a great time of year for you. Dude. So everything's covered in pollen. And yesterday I was, uh, I went to visit some friends. I sat on this seat and when I got up, there was pollen all over my back, all over my butt. And then I was just sneezing like wild and I was coughing and stuff. And then I got home and I Googled like pollen allergy, like what to do if you have a pollen, pollen allergy, like how to help with that. Yeah. And I was just like, how interesting that in our heads, we mentally separate, okay, if I'm experiencing a physical symptom, I just Google it. But then if I am experiencing a mental uh, symptom, I feel broken and embarrassed. And like, it it was just interesting to me that my gut instinct with a physical thing is to Google it to see what I can do. But my gut instinct with a mental symptom was to shut it down and pretend that I wasn't experiencing it. Like, what the heck? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, You know, like how intense that is. And, you know, I think even in like certain vernaculars, I, you know, I just said, it's crazy. And there's a connotation with that and and Mm -hmm. a stigma, stigmatized version of that, that can be offensive and and challenging for some people too, because we don't talk about this stuff and we don't Mm -hmm. really do that. And that's something I'm working on being mindful and 
you know, I just wanted to call myself out on that in this second. But the the other aspect of what you're talking about is that, you know, when you sit and you hold a secret or you're the only one who knows or we don't talk about that, it becomes bigger instead of smaller. But that idea of control is intoxicating in the way of, hey, well, I'm in control. I'm going to shut this down so no one can kind of know. But it just balloons from there. I had a, a therapist one time tell me in a very loving and kind way, and it took me a while to digest because it, it didn't come off that way. But it was, hey, Steve, you're not that special. <laughs> <laughs> and initially it was like, what the hell? Like, my mom says I'm special. What do you say? Mm-hmm. You know, and like that that kind of reaction. But it really when I was able to digest it, it made a lot of sense. Like you're talking about is when we shut things down, when we hold this secret, we feel really isolated and we feel like I'm the only one dealing with this. And that help that hinders us from actually finding other people to communicate around with it, which can help make us seen and actually be really healing for us to, to kind of move forward. Yeah, it is. The control thing is funny, too, because I think about like OCD, for example, I had debilitating OCD and the one of the primary principles behind OCD for me was control. Like I wanted to be able to control these certain variables. Um, But what's funny about thinking that keeping it inside and not talking to anybody about it is controlling it is that it's like the exact opposite it's like allowing it to dictate the way that you behave and think Mm -hmm. and it was very surprising to me to find that when I started opening up about what I was going through you know some people didn't get it but a way larger percentage of people than I expected went like oh yeah dude my aunt has PTSD or like, oh yeah, dude, my, you know, I had bipolar growing up and then I started taking medication and I feel a lot better. And I was just like, are, are you guys just all over the place? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, it's it's almost weird when you think about it because it's, um, you know, you, you can feel really happy when people share about that, but in any other circumstance, it would it would be a weird conversation. Like, why am I happy that they're sharing that? But in reality, right. oh, I feel seen. I feel this is this makes Mm -hmm. sense now. Like I'm not the only one who's dealing with that stuff. And it's very powerful. I've had, you know, my own kind of interactions with that, but I've definitely seen that breakthrough with, with people I work with. It's like, Hey, I just learned from my friend that she has trauma. It's like, okay. I feel weird smiling about this, but I feel like there's someone to, I can talk to now because they get it. Yeah. I've said before, um, I wish nobody could relate to me. Like best case scenario is I really am the only person in the world who's ever experienced this stuff because it's hard. Like ideally nobody else would ever have to experience it. But the fact that people can relate, it it is bittersweet because you're like, I wish you hadn't experienced, I wish you didn't live with that. But me knowing that you do brings both of us a heck of a lot closer together. Even if we don't talk directly about it, that's a thing like, you know, sometimes, so I love metal music a lot. And if I walk past someone wearing a t-shirt from a band I love, we, we don't even have to communicate. I'm just like, that's my dog. Yeah. Like, I feel like (laughs) I understand that person. And there's something very similar in, in the mental health realm where once you even understand once you understand that somebody else understands, it doesn't even have to be this whole like sitting down and talking through all the details of what you went through. Just knowing that they get it, you're like, oh, dog, I got your back, you know? Yeah. Um, very, very much so. Like, uh, I'm a huge fantasy geek kind of person. And, you know, I see someone with a Captain America shield on their clothes. I see someone wearing, uh, you know, a Lord of the Rings thing or, you know, whatever it is, not even, I don't even have to call them out. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Like that person and I would probably vibe on this. Yep. <laughs> and I feel, it feels good just to have another person in, in that realm, you know? Um, and it, it is very, the power of that's very amazing when you, when you talk about re- like managing your own recovery, because it, it's really informative in continuing that work on, on some of those days where you feel like, you don't want to, right? Um, 
Um, and so that that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is the hopes to kind of have some of this conversation out in the world and people can connect to, to some of the guests and what we're talking about and, and kind of making it more accessible in, in a way so that this kind of stuff can start to become, like you said, not even an everyday conversation, but just being vulnerable with someone about this stuff can be healing. And then you, you may never talk about it again mm -hmm. with that person, but just knowing that there's this, this kind of ability to do it is it, so amazing. When you said the, um, someone said that you're not special, I'm reminded of this one phrase that I always get confused. I can't remember what the exact phrase is. It was either um, you may be special, but what you're going through is not, mm -hmm. or vice versa. Like what you're going through may be special, but you are not. But either way, it makes me think of like, you know, everyone, we kind of go through life liking to think that we are very unique and one of a kind, mm -hmm. but our experiences are largely uniform, right? Like we all experience disappointment and loss and anger and frustration and guilt and regret. And like, it's, it's almost comforting to think like, you're not as unique as you think you are. Your life experience isn't as unique because at least when you walk into a room, you don't feel like a total stranger to everybody. You're like, everybody in this room has felt disappointed, has felt hopeless, has felt confused. And that, if nothing else, provides like some level of connection. And I think what made my early treatment hard was because I was convinced that I was the only person going through it. And that's what made me think that my doctor couldn't possibly know what I was experiencing. Right. I'm like, you can go to school your whole life, but you don't know what I'm experiencing. And then I went to school and I'm like, oh, my doctor knows everything about what I'm experiencing. In fact, she's probably met with 40 people just like me in the last two weeks. Right. And that's kind of a relief. Yeah. I mean, that would make me feel comfortable going to see someone. If, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. You talk to people who have similar interests or similar yeah. situations going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think there's probably a way that I could have been told that that would have been more digestible <laughs> at the time besides <laughs> that. But I also think I, I needed something so um, intense to kind of snap into it because initially my initial reaction was like, how dare you? And then yeah. once I could put some, some thought and awareness to it, I was like, Oh no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I yeah. understand why it was said that way to kind of jar me into that position. And luckily I had a, a good enough relationship with the person that, you know, it wasn't a, okay, bye situation. Yeah. Um, so you went to, to school for psychology and then we, we referenced cope notes a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about that, but what was that journey from, you know, going to school and studying psychology to, you know, we talked about the spectrum to getting to the point where you, you created cope notes and, and talk a little bit about what that is, I guess. It was very nonlinear. Like while I was in school, my band got signed. And so I had to finish my degree on the road. Like I was literally in a van on tour with like a psychology textbook in my lap, like <laughs> doing online quizzes. And for a while, so I did, I was doing a bunch of volunteer work at the time in peer support and public advocacy. So I would like go to schools and hospitals and stuff to talk about like the patient experience, like what people with mental illness feel like when they are going through those stages of care and how to recognize signs and symptoms. And I loved doing that style of volunteer work. It was like peer support just spoke to me, dude. So I started doing tons of it. And then um, I should clarify that I never set out to start a tech company. I am like not a tech, I didn't go to school for tech. I didn't grow up dreaming of like, oh, I'll be like a tech bro. Um, I grew up wanting to be a rock star and then mental illness derailed a lot of my, you know, a lot of what I was trying to accomplish. So I go to treatment, start working in peer support. And then um, I started a peer support project called Better People that you can't find. So don't Google it because it lasted, <laughs> you know, less than six months. It like failed immediately. Um, 
which I then turned into something called Not a Therapist, which you might be able to find somewhere. Um, and I ran that for about a year. And that was like a digital peer support resource. And there were a lot of extraneous components that people didn't really find value in. So we kept collecting feedback from people like, you know, what parts do you like? What parts are most useful? What parts could you do without? And slowly, like our users started whittling away, like, here's what I don't use. Here's what I could do without. And we wound up with people just saying, can't you just text me every once in a while with something that will help me think differently? And I'm like, there has to be some kind of neuroscience behind that, right? So I went to digging and um, created something that texted people at random times. And I wanted those texts to be written by peers with lived experience to have that peer support base. And then I wanted the text to be based on proven psychological principles. So like an exercise or a journaling prompt or, you know, not just like breathe. I wanted it to like actually <laughs> It's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I just started focusing on building that and maybe about, um, maybe nine months in, I, I was giving guest lectures at USF in Tampa and one of the researchers said, Hey, can I take a closer look at what you're working on? And then she was like, I don't know if you know what you're doing, but this is kind of a big deal that you're doing this. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she, she filled me in on the principle of ecological momentary intervention or EMI and basically how it's like a way to train the brain to think in healthier patterns. And she's like, did you know that this is what you're doing? And I'm like, I'm not going to lie. I didn't. So then we started purposely building Cope Notes to be an EMI resource. And it really, it, I think that was a huge catalyst and like having, you know, earlier I said, you don't have to be a doctor to make a difference in people's lives, but it sure does help to work with some. <laughs> I'm really glad that I was approached by Dr. K and it definitely changed the trajectory of the resource to make it like a more credible, effective thing rather than like a backyard project, you right. know. Can you talk a little bit about EMI and explain like, you know, just very short notes of what that is and why it's effective? Yeah, so this it, EMI is totally up my alley because I have a very short attention span, right? I think a lot of people in our generation do. Um, so the thinking behind EMIs is, you know, you have automatic negative thought. So you have like literally thousands and thousands of negative thoughts coursing through your brain every day. And a lot of them are subconscious. A lot of them aren't really like in the front of your brain, but it's thoughts like, Oh, I'm nervous about tomorrow or what if there's traffic or I can't believe I said that or my laugh is annoying or, you know, whatever types of critical thoughts you have. And a lot of them are playing on repeat relatively uninterrupted. So the thinking behind EMIs is if we interrupt a negative thought pattern with a catalyst for positive thought, so we kind of surprise it, we kind of knock that negative thought train off the tracks. If we do that, consistently enough over time the brain will learn to do that on its own by challenging negative thought patterns and prioritizing positive thought patterns and the cool thing is the synapses in your brain literally rearrange themselves in order to do this so it's like when i started learning about that the physical component of emis how like synapses will pull apart and grow closer together depending on which thoughts you kind of um, learn to optimize for within the brain and the fact that it's this like seemingly super complicated psychological process but actually our brain is doing it all the time anyway mm -hmm. I was like oh we can make this tool really really simple while keeping it effective because the important part is that the important part is the interruption so right. if you just like opened a book and read something positive that does help you but imagine if that book like threw itself at your brain <laughs> at random times, that interruption is crucial because it kind of snaps those synapses associated with negative thought a little further apart. Yeah. It's, it's like the principle of novelty with that, I think is really important because your brain mm -hmm. is kind of geared toward, oh, this is something new. Let me pay attention to it. And so the fact that you were able to, to kind of work that into it. And so if you know it's coming, it doesn't work like it works, but it doesn't work as well because it's, it's not that 
interruption. And I, I think it's great for everyone to hear that because there are ways that you can make that work for you. Dude, the, so the habituation thing is actually how I arrived at the random timing because originally I was putting sticky notes for, I talk about it in my TED talk a little bit, but I had, I was putting like sticky notes all around my house that said things that I needed to hear. Um, so some kind of interruption, but after a few days of seeing that sticky note in the mirror, I just, it like blended in yeah, and my brain you know. just didn't process it. And I was learning that habituation is actually, it's like a survival mechanism for your brain. Like it, it can't allocate full resources to processing the same piece of stimulus over and over again. Yeah. It's going to burn itself out. So when I realized that the brain is like optimized to be lazy, to like conserve as many calories as possible. I was like, shoot, we're going to have to go guerrilla warfare on this thing for it to actually work. Yeah. So instead of setting like a timer for 2 PM every day to be grateful, which if you have not done that, try it. Like, cause it's, it's not going to have a negative effect. I don't yeah. think. Um, but I learned after trying to integrate like regular practices, I was like, I need consistency because that's how you form new neural pathways is through like consistent repetition. But I also need it to be random and unexpected enough, unpredictable enough that my brain doesn't just tune it out after a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was laughing when you were talking about the brain uh, being lazy because I, I talk to people all the time about it. I'm like, your brain is doing so much that it really tries to be as lazy as possible on things it doesn't need to really put mm -hmm. a lot of attention to. And that's where habits and routines kind of come in and you just kind of go through the motions without necessarily having all that awareness kind of put into it. Um, and it's a really important part of making change when, when you talk about that, because if, if you're not aware of what you're doing and your body's and your mind are just kind of going through the motions, you can't make change that way. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, yeah. And that, that gratitude timer is fantastic. I also like setting time, uh, like chimes that come randomly. And when you hear it, it's, okay, this is my moment of mindfulness or my moment to reflect or, you know, yep. find a gratitude aspect. It's really great. So you started Cope Notes and you're just kicking ass now. Like, what's the story? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. That imagine if that was a story, right? I just started it and everything's great. Um, <laughs> So we're, we are in our fifth year of operation. And um, the first year, it was mainly just people like you and me using it. And that was my plan, right? Just like to have individual people sign up. Um, and then we started working on a gift and family option. So like if you wanted to give a subscription to a coworker or get one for your whole family, you're like, I want me and my wife and my three teenagers Oh, three teenagers at the same time. I can't imagine. Um, to all use Cope Notes and kind of talk about it as a family. But then I think during the second year, um, we started getting more requests for like big groups, like school districts and um, HR companies and like employers and insurance and government. And I was like, holy crap, wait a second. I like did not picture doing this full-time like when I started Cope Notes I worked at an ad agency as my full-time job so Cope Notes was like a volunteer project and then eventually when we started making a little money I was like well I need to spend this money on hiring somebody to help me with like the technology side because that's not my background and then when we made a little more money I'm like well shoot now we need to like hire someone who can help us with like operations and then slowly like as we made a little bit more money, a little bit more money, I started building out the team and it over time, it definitely like right now it is a legitimate company. And I never expected like on my, when I bought the domain name, copenotes.com, I was not like, I'm going to run a company. It was like, it was like the seventh in a long line of volunteer projects that I, I never expected to grow like it has. That's amazing. I love it. I, I think it's so, so cool to see how that growth has happened and just, just from doing some of what's needed and ha having people show up. And I think that's a big thing is when you start applying awareness and attention to those kind of things, people are going to respond to them if it, you know, and things will open up. So it's great that that that's really worked um, towards where you're at and you're able to do this full time and, and 
do something you love doing, right? Dude, um, I will. I will say the first three years, I thought about quitting every single day. <laughs> yeah. It was like the that's most, the other side of the story. I think that that's also no, because mentally, one of the most difficult things you can do is starting a company. But the very next most difficult thing, if not more difficult, is running it after you've started it. It's like this tremendous mental battle where you're rejected by potential clients every day and you have employees quitting. And it's like this, it is a true roller coaster that has definitely made me like, has added to my mental fortitude, but has also put me through periods where I felt like genuinely mentally distressed because of how much pressure I was under. And I think now over the last year or so, I've gotten better at navigating that, but I'm not, I'm not joking, man, running a bit. I think everyone who runs a business needs like daily therapy sessions. It is brutal stuff. Yeah. Uh, we could just hook them up with Coke notes and that, that will help. Boom. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about music before we move into some of the closing questions I like to end every podcast with, but so you're really into heavy metal. You were in band that got signed, you toured and, and, and you know, live that life for a period of time. Um, what is it about music that really speaks to you and connects with you? Because I do think it's really important and a way to kind of work on some of, um, like we said, on that spectrum, I think music and art and things of that nature are a huge part of that as well. But I just want to hear your story in terms of music and what it means for you. Yeah, I'm a writer. So my background is like copywriting. I used to write books and poems and I've obviously written songs um speeches and you know I just love the English language I love writing I feel that a chord progression on a guitar can say words that do not exist in the English language um there's like I've heard chord progressions like on a piano or on a harp or on a bass I've heard like a drum rhythm that I felt like told me a whole story and made me feel feelings I didn't even know I needed to feel. And there's this, like, it, music feels like the rawest form of universal communication. And it doesn't feel as limited in your ability to express. Like, for example, if I am having a conversation with you, there are certain social norms that I wanna like abide by. And that's not necessarily bad, right? Like I want to speak clearly. I want to not mumble. I want to make eye contact and those things. Music, I feel, has more room for deviation from those norms and therefore creates this like veritable playground of creativity where you might be able to experience a different level of self-expression than you could just through regular communication. I think that's true of all art. That's great. I, I think that's so beautifully put and and connects like when you're talking about it, I can visualize it. And I can almost hear the music that does that for me and, and really mm -hmm. connect in, in that way. So I think that's a great point and beautifully articulated. Um, OK, so you're ready for I don't want to call it the lightning round because I feel like that's kind of cheesy, but I guess like. <laughs> Whatever, we'll, we'll come up for a name. because I'm in Tampa, Florida. So oh, there you go. <laughs> always the lightning round here. There you go. Um, so two questions that go hand in hand. Uh, I'll, I'll give you both and you can answer them however you want. The first is, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? And the second is, what do you believe your real life superpower is? I like that. My, the superpower question is tough, but I'm going to go with my gut and not overthink it. The first thing that came to my mind was teleportation. All right, bro. If I could just, cause I have so many friends who live in other States and other countries. And if I could just like snap my fingers and be there, Oh, be nice. Oh, my sure. social life would be flourishing right now. Um, just go to so Europe that, for lunch and then come back and yeah. Oh, I can't dude. Cause even, even if you're like some billionaire with a private jet, it still takes a long time. Yeah, and you destroy right. the environment. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would need to be like, I would need to teleport under the condition that it does not pollute. Yeah, I don't know exactly how, what the science is behind it. Um, as far as my real life superpower, 
That's tough. I feel, I don't know if this is really a superpower, but I feel like it's that I'm, this might seem kind of reductionist, but that I'm still here doing it. Like my life, not to be dramatic, but that, you know, the first quarter century of my life was like just torture. It's like trauma and abuse and illness. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do so many things. I couldn't like live my life. The fact that I am still a functioning human being after experiencing everything I've experienced. And even like, we don't, we're not going to get into it, but last year I had some terrible stuff happen in in my personal and family life um, that I'm still like working through and having to navigate all while running a business, all while writing music and trying to be like a good friend to people, a good boss, a good leader, um, a good vocalist, like a normal tax paying citizen that like (laughs) buys groceries and stuff. The fact that I'm still function, I think, I think the fact that anybody is still functioning right now as like a person Mm -hmm. is like, as close to superhuman quality as I can picture in the real world. Yeah. It's just resilience. I, I don't think that's reductionist at all. I think from everything we've talked about, it's a hundred percent true. And then, you know, you're right. Like where we're at right now, it's amazing how people are even functioning on a day-to-day basis, you know, and even if they're not like that ability to come, come to it at some point. Like, yeah. It's a lot of sense. Uh, thank you so much for being open and honest about that stuff. I know um, that's that's part of what we need on the spectrum is is that ability to connect. But I also do want to thank you for that because it's rare that we get to see that in a person. And I think it's also really beautiful that you're you're sharing that with us. All right, very last question uh, for the podcast is obviously we've been talking about the spectrum of mental health care and what that looks like and and being open and communicating. And I'm just wondering if you have any any last uh, ideas of advice to impart to the listeners who might be struggling with that or having trouble with being vulnerable or finding people to connect to or, or things of that nature, anything to kind of uh, speak to them directly, what that might be. Yeah, I, I have two quick pieces of, I want to say advice because it sounds like I'm, I feel like to offer someone advice, you have to be like 75. And just like this wise old sage. When I turn like, 75, I'm going to be like, I'm, I'm going to tell everyone how to live. Yeah. Gandalf has advice. Like yeah. he's been there, right? I, yeah, um, yeah. I'd listen to Gandalf if he yeah. dropped in and was like, hey, you should do this. I'll, I'll say, here's my two cents. Um, the first cent, the first penny is um, really prioritize prevention. Like, I, so many times in my life, I'd say, well, I'm not this bad, or I'm not that bad. Or, you know, I know someone else who's in a worse position or whatever. And all it did was just like, kick the can down the road until I was worse than the people that I said I was better off than. So just like, don't basically don't wait for things to get worse. Start doing something immediately. You know, like when is the best time to start brushing your teeth? Like probably before you have cavities, like don't wait until you get them to start brushing. I, so many times in my um, life I'd say, well, so then the other thing I would bad, say is I'm not that bad. Or if you haven't, you know, I know someone in your friends is in a worse position members about and what all you're going it did through was just like um, mentally the down the road and until I you was were worse like, than the people kind of that nervous I said about the ramifications. I was better of off then. So just you like do what I did. Basically, don't wait I for things to get worse. To start strangers doing first. something immediately. Like, would start you know, like when is people, the best time to start brushing um, your teeth? Like probably before you have me or like, don't wait even until you get them all to start or on a bus or whatever, and just kind of feel it out. Don't just like dump your life on somebody. But maybe it would be easier to bring up what you're going through to someone who you know you might not see again soon and and kind of get those early reps so that when you do talk to a friend or family member you've at least already experienced someone hearing what you say and go like okay and you realize that you didn't die nothing exploded and then you can I had to work up to talking to my family about it and there's nothing wrong with seeing if you can talk to a stranger about it to to kind of prime that pump. 
I'm not going to call it advice either, but two very important sense that you threw out there for, for, for the listeners and I well, well appreciate, um, you know, the information because I do think it's really important and, you know, there's a lot of science behind that too. Just these one-off conversations can be really helpful for repetition or even just releasing what you're holding on to. So, yeah. Well, Johnny, so blessed and honored to kind of have you on today. I appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, talking about Cope Notes and, um, you know, just being a, an agent of support, I guess is what I'll say. It's, it's, it's amazing um, to kind of see that in another person. So I appreciate you and what you're doing. Dude, thank you for having me. And, and also thank you to people who just spent 45 minutes listening to something that's going to help improve their mental and emotional health. Like if you just stayed with us for a whole episode, what that says about you as a person that you choose to fill your ears and brain with this type of stuff means that you're already miles ahead of where I was when I started. You're yeah. like, you're doing great. Basically. You're look, you're looking for something you're doing that you're turning towards. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, unlike me who spent my eighth grade hiding from trauma and overeating <laughs> by watching um, cartoons and Akira, <laughs> which also was very valid choice in, in, in this aspect. Those are great things. Yeah. However, you know, thank you all. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the Promethean Project.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends, like our posts on social media and Instagram and on Facebook, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.